Welcoming me into your home this week. Uh, this week now, I kind of consider that a lot of my, you could divide my content, my video work or my, you know, writing or whatever into two camps. There's the positive and the negative. Um, and the negative is, you know, a lot of the, of, uh, the exposure of, of abuses and crimes and the awfulness of what goes on in destructive cults or domestic violence situations or coercive controlling situations, you know, all the bad stuff, right? And things that people, um, you know, some people come to my channel just exclusively for that, but I like to put out positive messaging as well. Uh, there's another side to this. It's not all just the bad and the awful that people do to each other. There are solutions to these problems. There are things we can do in order to raise our kids better, uh, get ourselves into a better state of mind, a more critical state of mind, uh, critical thinking, that kind of thing, right? We all know this is my bandwagon. And um, while I no longer necessarily throw out this critical thinker at large moniker, I am very much an advocate proponent for critical thinking. And in that vein... You can see I have uh, invited guest Julie Bogart this week. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the show. Thrilled to be here, Chris. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to have you here. Now, you are an educator, and reading here from your bio, you grew up in SoCal, which is where I come from, California, right? Sunny, there you go. <laughs> sunny Pasadena is where I grew up. And uh, you attended UCLA. You have a bachelor's in history. You studied abroad. You spent time in the Congo and Morocco. You have a master's in theology from 2007. And more to the point of, I think, where we're going in the show, you have also really focused on and figured out um, how do you go about teaching critical thinking uh, skills in a homeschooling setting? And you had five mm. kids and you work this out and you have put programs together on writing and critical thinking and teaching these things. You add this is a you call this the Brave Writer Program and, right. and others. So uh, why don't you go ahead and with that sort of little intro, uh, who are you? Why should we listen to you? <laughs> Let's start with that. <laughs> well, if you are good critical thinkers, I hope you will wonder why you're listening to me and actually do your own vetting. I am all for that. Uh, yeah, I grew up in the Calabasas Park, so in the um, LA area in the 1970s over the canyon from Malibu. So I had kind of a crunchy granola, you know, progressive Catholic <laughs> background. Uh, I went to church in Malibu Canyon where they protected draft dodgers. Like that kind of, you know, sort of both conformist on one level and also challenging the norms on another. We got very involved in nutrition and wellness long before those words were even on social media. I mean, this is this goes all the way back for me. And so during those years, um, I went through, uh, and we'll talk about it at some point, but I went through the experience of being in the New Age movement, which was really popular in SoCal. And then my parents got divorced and it was shattering for me. Mm. And I found myself looking for sort of moral clarity, something that would protect me from that ever happening to me. And I found it in evangelical Christianity in college. 
And so I took sort of a right-hand turn away from a lot of that more progressive upbringing and wound up for about 20 years in that community. During that time, I served as a missionary. I served as a ghostwriter for the leader of a denomination. Uh, and that's where I heard about homeschooling, honestly. Right. right. So at the time, homeschooling for me was a logical extension of raising children. It was a way to instill values and beliefs and practices that were sacred and valuable to me. But interestingly, there's nothing like educating children to re-educate yourself. And one of the things homeschooling parents find very quickly is that sort of the version of history they got in school, and I was a history major, uh, and their understanding of literature and even how they process their worldview is under attack when you share it with your children. They're like, why is that in the Bible? You know, right. I thought God loved us. Why is he killing people? Like right. there were, you know, the questions that came up. And simultaneous to that, the World Wide Web was introduced in the 1990s. Right. I was in my mid-30s. And uh, the watering hole for homeschoolers became a place where I thought this homogeneous group of people could get along and share, you know, parenting advice. It became a bloodbath over theology very quickly. Uh, Women who would have been so friendly at a park day were just trolling each other before we even had the language for trolling, right? Right. And that combination launched me on quite a journey. I found myself asking this question persistently. Why do I think I'm right and you're wrong? On what basis can I be sure that I'm right and you're wrong? Why does everyone feel that way? And of course, I even asked it in sort of a theological way. If the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, why can't any of us agree what that truth is? So that's what got me started. And you know, this journey are... has been 25 years <laughs> in the making. Yeah, well, those are great questions. And obviously, good critical thinking questions. I have to ask right away, I mean, having, you know, Im Im immersing yourself into an evangelical community, obviously, you didn't park your brain. And that's, huh. and that's really good. And unfortunately, <laughs> it, I'm sure you would understand the sentiment that a lot of people look at the evangelical community and wonder. Yes. How many, how is it possible that people park their brains so well, you know, with certain facts? I mean, and here I talk here about intelligent design versus, you know, evolutionary theories, oh, stuff sure. like that, right? Real sciencey <laughs> stuff, not faith, not, not articles of faith. Right. Um, you know, I have problems with that, but that's not, that's not what we're talking about today. I just, I find it so refreshing to see people come out of that world or be part of that world even and keep their brain fully active, keep the questions going, not let themselves fall prey to the thought-stopping cliches or thought-terminating ideas, you know, in those worlds because uh, faith is a powerful motivator to stop thinking. You know, so. I, would, I would like to piggyback on that comment. Sure. I would say that my intellectual awakening began, began in a Bible study in college. It was the first time I was introduced to examining context, language, historical environment. It was the first time I was invited to consider that the words on the page might mean something different in the original context than they meant in the late 20th century. Right. I started imagining my history, all the history I was learning at UCLA, 
I understood it better through Bible study than many of my courses because we were being asked to do hermeneutical interpretation. And that was intoxicating. I loved it. And that turned out to be true for many of my peers. You know, I have friends who've gone into ministry and become pastors and missionaries and all of that. When you talk about parking the brain, the way I would rather put it is we're parking ourselves in community, not so much our brains. So what's happening, and I talk about this inside Raising Critical Thinkers, mm -hmm. we are controlled by both individual perception and the reasonableness of a story that your community tells, what I call mm -hmm. a logic story. So mm -hmm. it has logical coherence, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's all true. It's just that the story that's told works for that community. So we come into a community with an individual perception. I'm just going to use sex because sex is always a fun one to talk about. So we come in and we're like, body feels good. I like sexual contact, right? That's an individual perception. Then your community, your family comes in and says, well, actually, can't have sex with your sister. Can't have sex with the guy down the street. You can't let your body be used for those things. They tell a story that helps you value sex in some other container. Your church will do that for you. They will take individual perceptions, your church, your cult, your community, whoever it is, and they will tell you how to interpret those and give them meaning. And we love meaning. Human yes. beings are meaning-making machines. It's our favorite thing. So when you're seeking meaning and you join a community, they will help you interpret the overwhelming nature of your perceptions into a logic story that gives you that meaning. Once you have the meaning, now you've got a whole community to reinforce it and they bring you meals after you have a baby, by the way. <laughs> it is very difficult to leave these lovely people yep. just because you're like, but should everyone go to hell who doesn't believe in Jesus? So the parking of the brain is more a realignment with the logic story of the community to retain membership. Well, I could not disagree with a single word you said there. And of course, you know, my reductionist statement of that is is simply that. But it's it, it what you're saying is basically fully in alignment with what I've been talking about a lot on my channel in regards to the fact that, you know, I look at it, I, I, I you're you're correctly, you know, melding there the psychology and the sociological factors, right? Mm. And and that's what cultic belief is all about when it goes, you yes. know, off the rails. Um, but we do have that individual capacity, as you're saying, right? We will believe anything if we are given a good enough reason to. Yes. And those narratives and those meanings and those tropes that are used are the things we will glom onto. And yes, this makes sense, right? And these stories evolve over time in such a way that they appeal to the broadest possible number of people. And so this is where we come up with archetypes and tropes and you know these kind of things and where our all our fairy tales come from and our stories this is what you know carl young was on about and you know what right jordan, shades of jordan peterson a little bit but i you know I, I i i cringe a little bit every time i say his name even though that is a a fairly hefty part of his shtick is the whole archetype thing and right and i think in that regard he has he makes some decent psychological points but I, I completely agree with what you're talking about there. It's like, how do we find uh, community? Well, we find common ground, common meaning, and, and these right. stories are the way we do it. 
how do you see, you know, because you've spent a lot of time parsing this out, right? How do we teach yes. kids? Well, you know, it, 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 it seems to me that your approach from what I've looked at is not, well, here are a bunch of facts and here are you regurgitating these facts to me. And here is you being a good critical thinker as a result of you regurgitating these facts back to me. That doesn't seem to be your model. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, so how, how do you approach this? Yeah. So first, I just want to say something about the language of critical thinking. The mm -hmm. original title of the book that I proposed in my book proposal was Raising Self-Aware Thinkers. And my editor felt that self-awareness was not clear enough for ed the education space. So we went with critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But if you read my book, you will realize that for me, critical thinking is not the ability to deconstruct somebody else's bad ideas. It's actually the ability to self-examine and notice the gaps in your own thinking, places where you can't be sure, where you don't know all the information, or even to interrogate why you feel so sure. I, I love to let uh, adults know all the time that one of the biggest clues to me that I'm not thinking critically is smugness. Whenever I feel smug, I know it's a moment where I have to pause and actually ask the question. Uh, there was um, a group online years ago called Walk Away From Faith or Walk Away From Fundamentalism. And it involved people leaving religious beliefs and cults. And so I was very drawn to this space. And one of the features I noticed right away is that the people who had left religion immediately glommed onto science with the exact same fervor and dependency and orientation to authority that they had had in religion. Yep. Not one of those people were qualified to vet the research of astrophysicists, and yet they were just citing it chapter and verse like, I've got the authority, Carl Sagan said it. And I remember feeling this very uh, distraught moment where I realized I can't vet Carl Sagan's word. <laughs> like, I'm just back to taking somebody else's word for it. Mm -hmm. And this began a journey for me to really examine how we form our beliefs. We typically join in with some ideas that we agree with with a few people. And then it becomes almost like a cable subscription, right? Oh, I kind of like the Democrats a little better than the Republicans. So here are the news channels I'm allowed to watch. Right. Here are the ones I should never watch. Here are the thinkers I can trust. Here are the ones I can't, because I can't tell you about climate change. I'm a humanities girl. Exactly. So exactly. That, makes, that makes a huge difference. So when I'm teaching children, when we talk about the family, what I want parents to begin to recognize is that actually you are on the parental propaganda program from the moment they're born. You are doing everything you can to recruit them into your superior way of thinking, and you're denying them the opportunity to challenge you in pretty much every moment of their existence. Mm. So the place we begin fostering critical thinking isn't about whether or not climate change is real, whether or not there's intelligent design, whether or not you go to hell. It's when your child doesn't want to wash his hands before dinner, actually being curious about that. Mm -hmm being interested in it, not just launching into, well, you know, germs are on your hands. And if you eat the food, you'll get sick. Interrogate your own belief. Didn't you just see that same child eat Cheerios off the floor an hour ago? Right. 
Didn't you in Target pick up the baby's pacifier off the floor and suck the dirt off of it and put it back in your baby's mouth? Do you actually even believe what you're telling your child? And aren't there other solutions for, you know, sanitizing hands than soap and water? Could we use a blow dryer for heat? Could we use sanitizer? Could we roll the dice and just see if the kid gets sick? But we do not think that way. We're so entrenched in the worldview that there are right and wrong ways to do things and that experts that we've never vetted know more than we do. And we pass that along as a worldview construct to our children. So by the time they're 18, they're just looking for authorities to trust. And when they're 16, it's their teenage peer group because they've never thought about vetting anybody. They're like, well, this group seems to know things my parents don't know. Mm. Well, that is all very, very interesting. I. I have, um, of course, nothing but agreement with pretty much everything you're saying. Okay. Yet at the same time, I, yes. I temper it with this. And let me ask you how you deal with this, because this is the first thing I think you run across, or at least I, I smack up against, which is, man, that is so energy and time consuming. Oh, yes. Oh, so what I always follow on saying is you can only do this like once every three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but you right. know what? You don't have to do it for everything every day for the message to start to become a part of your family. Okay. One of the great practices that um, I'm not married anymore, but my ex-husband and I are still on good terms. And when we were raising kids, one of the things he used to do, I, I was looking to see if I had a remote control around, but what he used to do is, We'd watch a movie and after the opening action scene, he'd push pause and he'd turn to the kids and he'd say, okay, who are we rooting for? And everybody, you know, it's an action scene. You don't know the characters yet, but somehow you know who to root for. That's right. You know, is it Aladdin? Right. Is it, who is it, right? Is it Robin Hood? Yep. And then he would ask them, well, how do we know not to root for that guy? Yep. And then yep. they'd have to like, think about it. And then we'd get a little further in and we'd be like, well, what problem is the main character trying to solve? What about the story of this other character? Does that not matter? Why don't we care about solving that? And we would just kind of interrogate, you know, occasionally yeah, a whole movie. Right. And get them in touch with what's affecting their thinking because it's not the thoughts. It's not the beliefs. It's how we form beliefs that teaches you to be a critical thinker. It, yeah. it has almost nothing to do with the beliefs. Those will keep changing. We know that. That's right. That's exactly right. What would you say in response to me asserting that, to, that critical thinking is not so much a set of methods of how to do something as it is a discipline that mm. you have to instill within yourself? that follows a set of rules, generally speaking, in the same way, this is how I analogize it, and it makes perfect sense to me, and I'm wondering, you know, what, what you would say to this, in that, you know, you go into a martial arts dojo, and you learn how to throw a punch, you learn how to throw a kick, and you can sit there and practice that all day long, but the discipline of martial arts is not how to throw a punch or a kick. Yes, that's very much part of the skill set. <clears throat> but it's really, really at its essence, it's knowing when to throw that punch or kick and mm. when not to, right? 
And that's yeah. the discipline of it because an undisciplined martial artist will just go flail at anybody, anytime, anywhere, for any reason. You know, any provocation's good enough provocation, right? And if they understand how to throw a punch well enough, then they will be effective in hurting people, but they won't necessarily be a good martial artist. I love that analogy. I have not ever done martial arts, but mm. I am a distance runner and the the idea of there being discipline involved in these commitments that we make to yeah. whatever field seems really important to me. And I'm wondering if what you're hinting at is knowing when to speak up about a belief, when to be quiet. You know, you're on Facebook, right? So yeah. why are we throwing all these punches randomly? That's where I think the self-awareness piece is so important. You know, you're yes. scrolling through and some person that you haven't seen in 30 years from high school posts something that you hate. The question to ask yourself isn't, how can I convert this person to my superior way of thinking? The question is, if I were able to get behind the eyes of this person, what were the factors that contributed to them being convinced this is the way to see the world? Because yes. the truth is, if you can get behind their eyes, you would see it the same way. So it's not even empathy. People accuse me of trying to go for empathy. It's not, it's understanding. You know, when I was uh, writing my master's thesis, I wrote it on Dietrich Bonhoeffer who led a resistance and an assassination attempt on Hitler. He was a pastor. And one of the things that I think he did really well was demonstrate how he had to work through his moral dilemma as a Christian to justify an assassination. And he walked through all these paces in his theology, it transformed everything about how he thought. He was being a self-aware thinker. He was giving himself the opportunity to imagine that there was another way to solve this horrific dilemma that we were all in. And I think for me, whenever I'm in those moments, I remember that there are forces acting on people that make them have the viewpoints they have, even if they don't align with what I think is the moral standard, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so just because I happen to agree with Bonhoeffer's conclusion wasn't a good enough reason for me to just say, well, then he was justified. Everybody justifies. And the more that Bonhoeffer went down the path of his fellow Christians being pro-genocide, the more he understood it, the more horrified he became. He didn't gain empathy. He became horrified by it. So sometimes understanding leads you to greater moral outrage. I think that's how we get social movements. And I think it's important and appropriate. But we will not have social movements that succeed without that foundational understanding. If I think of Martin Luther King Jr., he was appealing to a kind of standard of morality that he knew whites believed they held in right. the construction of his social justice marches. That's right. He was actually doing what we called in missionary work, contextualization, mm -hmm. contextualizing the message to the audience to provoke the greatest self-awareness moment. So when we're talking about these Facebook punches, are you actually contributing to a, an aha in another person, helping them generate their own insight into how they think? Or are you just having a good mud wrestle, you know? That's right. That's exactly right. And, that, and, and to be clear, you know, that surface level activity, that, that like, what am I going to do about this post, right? That question you're asking yourself, that's 
that's that discipline point because I look at yes. it as a self-discipline, right? I'm not talking about a discipline of of restraining yourself. I'm talking about that self-questioning, that practicing yes. what you preach. If you're going to demand other people be introspective and thinking and and think through not only the intended but the unintended consequences of their actions, then you have to do the same. And and that's a that's that discipline point because it's so easy to just throw things out there and then not really think too much about where you're actually going or where that person's going or where that person's been to get or to where, where they've they are. been. That's right. right. Or why you're a threat to them or right. why your thinking is problematic for them. Exactly. That's so true. You've you've nailed it in my view. Okay. One of the things I've noticed um, on this sort of book tour I've been on is, you know, I wrote another book called The Brave Learner, which is really specifically about home education. And I was invited to a lot of podcasts by women. And then I wrote Raising Critical Thinkers. And so many men have had me on their shows. And I got to say, so many of them automatically say that they're great at critical thinking. Like they think they're great critical thinkers the way all men think they're good drivers. Listen to me generalizing, <laughs> but it's very similar. And I think it's because- <laughs> I'm like sorry, that's so funny. <laughs> Cause I think I'm an awful critical thinker but I still think that this is hilarious. Please keep going. I, I and here's, here's why. When you're behind the steering wheel, you feel in control. So it's really yeah. hard to say to yourself, I'm not a good driver because you made all the decisions where to turn, how fast to go. You know, it's why you flip people off when you speed by them or they speed by you because you are behind the wheel and we are behind the wheel of our own thinking. All the tiny nooks and crannies and the different nuances that need to be in place for us to accept that way of thinking are present in us and we feel them so deeply that it makes us feel good at it. But the truth is that's true for everyone. Exactly. And um, women actually are a little bit better at being flexible thinkers because we've been beaten down for so long. Mm -hmm. We're constantly fact-checked by men. I used to be on this um, theological discussion board way back in the early 2000s. And uh, oh my gosh, I was like one woman among countless dudes who think they know. And I would repeatedly get patted on the head, talked down to. So one day I just created a new account with a man's name and I had a completely different experience. Suddenly right. I didn't have to provide any credentials or explain myself. I could just make declarative statements and people were accepting them or, or not. I mean, sometimes they just bash you right back. Uh, they're a little bit more rough and tumble, but it was instructive to me. I think women have had to learn how to hold multiple viewpoints simultaneously and dispassionately. They don't all do it successfully, and I certainly didn't for years, but I, they have more uh, practice with that. I, I agree completely, and I, I think there are evolutionary concerns there as well, right, factors there. Um, you know, being the weaker, physically weaker yeah. on the average, you know, it, it, it creates a different psychology with different needs, and, and, it, and it absolutely lines up with everything you just said there. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, and of course, your experience is is absolutely fascinating with that because you're not the only one who's done the male female thing online and realized right. how what a vastly different experience it is. And of course, you know it's it's funny because we we can put these things out there and then people can go, oh well, yeah, but what about? And you go, no, 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 no. Look, it's it really is it really is just as different for guys too. 
And there right. are there are cons. There's pros and cons, right? To both, right. both sides of this. That's not for sure. You know, let's let's not get our defenses totally. It's just inflow some information right now. It's just calm down. It's all good, right? <laughs> um, and that's and the, and those factors, I think, also are kind of important to that critical thinking component. You know, it's I I really have a hard time with 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 thinking at advanced levels of critical thinking without bringing psychology into it because that mm. discipline point right you can know your wife or your husband or your kid is spewing logical fallacies at you but but again that discipline point is knowing that it's not necessarily the right move to tell them that in the moment <laughs> you know well that's just logically fallacious you know i was like maybe that's not the best way to deal with that in the moment you know so i have one of those in my book so um mm. there's a, a writer named joel best and he is an expert in how to understand and interpret statistics and so i used his book stat spotting and he talks about how you need to know the measurement tool and a benchmark before you can evaluate whether or not a statistic is accurate so one night I was sitting on the couch with my boyfriend, who's a huge sports fan. And I had been, and I am too, by the way, I love sports. I've always watched them. I know it's my, I've played fantasy football and won leagues. So I really love sports. I'm not a typical woman who doesn't like them. So I had been scrolling through my phone and Naomi Osaka, um, they showed her on the ESPN account. And apparently she had hit this insanely fast speed serve. So I said to Jim, she hit a serve at 196 miles an hour. And my boyfriend looks at me and goes, that's not possible. And I'm like, Jim, it is. I saw it. It was on my phone. He's like, Julie, if a, a serve came that fast and it hit you, it would hurt you. I said, well, I'm not making it up. And I was feeling really defensive. He's a lawyer, right? And he's just so good with facts and numbers for me are adjectives. They're not real. I have no idea what they actually mean. They just mean big or small. And so, and so... But I had the visual in my head, so I knew I was right this time. So I get out my phone, and I'm scrolling, and then Jim says, you know, Julie, John Eisner's fastest speed uh, serve was 157 miles an hour, so there's no way Naomi's was 196. So now I'm starting to falter. It's starting to crack. And I finally get there, and as I'm about to open the screen, he says, was Naomi playing in the Australian Open? And I was like, Yeah. He goes, could it have been kilometers per hour? <laughs> of oh, course it was. It. And right. so there I was passing along misinformation because I wasn't patient enough to know how it was measured and what the benchmarks were. Jim knew the benchmarks. He knew John Eisner's serve. So he was able to vet the statistic. Right. Okay, fast forward. Last month, I was in Mexico for a month with my daughter who had just had a baby. And my boyfriend came to visit. And of course, gas prices are super high in the States. And we're driving along and he sees a gas station and he says, wow, gas is so cheap in Mexico. It's only $2 a gallon. And I was like, I don't think it's $2 a gallon, Jim. And he's like, it's right there on the sign. And then I looked at him and I said, could that be leaders? And he goes, oh, my gosh, you just got me just the same as the tennis, you know, and we had a good laugh. And that for me is what you're talking about. Like yeah. when we hear a logical fallacy, what we want to do is actually not humiliate the person, but actually look at the benchmarks, the standard of measurement, 
where this information is coming from, ask those questions and do it in a gentle way because we all misappropriate information, especially today. There's just such a glut of it. We can't even keep track of it. And the impression it leaves on you is not necessarily the accurate impression it was meant to create. That's the other thing to realize. Exactly. I can't stress enough. And, and of course, there's whole classes on this. And I've, and, and when I did my degree recently, I dived into statistics because I don't know a damn thing about them and had to learn about it in order to do the class. And I still don't know a damn thing about it, but at least I now have watched some lectures about it. And, (laughs) and, uh, you know, all I can really say is that numbers are inherently, uh, not just for me, I I have learned, you know, again, psychologically that numbers are, uh, numbers will fool you faster than anything. I mean, we really, really are bad at numbers and, 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 and I'm talking even, you know, just human beings in general. Right. Reason I stress this is because we have an overconfidence problem with numbers, exactly as you just pointed out. Even the simplest of little of little mistakes can throw our entire model with thinking out of you know Naomi, 196 miles an hour. No, she didn't. She nobody <laughs> ever did that. You know, and you look at that and you go, well, it's such an impressive thing. I, it must be true. And you're like, well, no, it's not. That's right. And so many numbers, you know, as they say, statistics don't lie, but liars use statistics, all that. Well, you know, uh, sometimes statistics lie, themselves lie. I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, of, of nuance to it. Again, the discipline of critical thinking is recognizing these faults that we have, these pitfalls, that these, these weaknesses that we are susceptible to. That's right. And, and, and recognizing that it's our, you know, here's, here's the key, I think, that you and I are really on the same page on with this that is so refreshing to hear, is, is it's not the discipline of spotting it in other people that I think right. is so important. It's, hey, buddy, you know, it's like before you even open your mouth, you know, are you sure? And that's not to say to never open your mouth. It's not to say to, to, right. to, to, not, to not question, to not put stuff out there. But it's to always be ready to pull it back. Go, I think yeah, you're. Maybe. I think you're referring to humility. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know. which is a key feature of good thinking. Exactly. Humility is a key feature. In my book, I talk about three ways that we access information. We access it through reading, through our experiences, and something I call encounter. Reading is the most deceptive of all ways to gain information because it's so fully under our control, right? When I read, it's similar to driving. I get to decide when to stop, when to start, which paragraph to skim, which paragraph to overvalue, you know, (laughs) which statistic is important, which statistic I'm going to pretend wasn't in that article, right? And we can feel like we've gained a lot of expertise because of the volume of information we consume. So we might think, oh, I know all about the struggles of Myanmar because I've read six New York Times articles about that place. But have you ever been to Myanmar? All you've done is give yourself an opportunity to hear someone's reported information. Now, that doesn't mean you don't know anything. It just means you only know some things and you only know them in this limited manner. So if you're going to speak on that human rights crisis, you can at least lead with, I've read a lot of information, haven't ever been there. These are the pieces that really stayed with me that I'm wondering about. 
so different than this is how it should be handled. And the UN is stupid for doing it this way. Right. Right. So, so that's reading. The second level then is experiencing. And I like to suggest when you think about reading as inadequate, one way to think about it is if you knew everything you could possibly know about a violin through reading, would you know a violin? Right. There you go. You would not. Because there is a huge feature of violins that reading can't account for called the sound. Like we've never heard Mozart's work in the original because all those people are dead and there were no recording devices. So we are always doing approximations of what we think it may have sounded like, but we will never know. So reading gets us a distance, but experience where I could go and listen to a concert of a violin or a bluegrass bar, a fiddle, totally different kind of violin. These are two vastly different experiences that will shape shift how you understood what you read. Encounter is put that violin in my hands. Now, the power dynamic has completely shifted. I am over my skis. I do not know how to play violin. Everything I thought I understood and appreciated from a concert, I suddenly have... You know, it's anyone who's done sports knows this. You can be critical of a professional baseball player, and then they ask you to do a pitch from the mound, and my pitch won't make it to home plate. So, right? right? So what we've got here then is the awareness, what I'm hoping to instill in children and their parents, is that while reading has been seen as the key to a great education, it is really more like an introduction service for dating. You are just getting an introduction to the subject, seeing if you like their picture, seeing if, you know, you hook up in any good way. But now you got to go on dinner, at, go out to dinner, and then encounter would actually be making a life, right? That's right. So if, if we do, you know, a country, I can read a travel guide, that's reading. I can go to the country as a tourist, that's experience. I can move there and try and make a life there, that's encounter. There you go. There you go. Uh, one could also consider it levels of immersion. Truly. That's thing. exactly right. That's, ex- that is what it is. You've yeah. got it. There you go. That's it. And, and there really is, I mean, I, I've said from the, from, for so long, you know, there really is no, there's just no substitute for experience. None, nope. none whatsoever. There is just nothing you can do that will substitute for actually going and doing a thing. And in this, I am, I am, um, uh, fortunate to have been in an education role, an educator role, even if it wasn't a cult, you know, I still had to get data imparted to people and skills imparted to people. And you learn in doing that, whether it's in a cult or not, if you want people to do it right, there's things you learn how to do. And, you know, reading is definitely part of that, uh, that, that, you know, I was a voracious reader when I was a kid. I'll never, ever, uh, recommend otherwise. You know, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's obvious you're a very literate person. Um, that is important, you know, but, but right. recognizing it's only step one is the wisdom there. And that's, that's really, really important um, for that experience component. Let me ask you this, taking it back a step to, to yeah. even pre-reading. I have said that uh, the three most important words for me and that, that that really brought that humility point home early on for me in in diving into this topic of critical thinking the three most important words for me in critical thinking are i don't know oh yes agreed what do you a think a thousand of that? percent yeah oh yes 
And in fact, we don't know about most things. Right. It's not like and something you reserve just for that one topic you don't know about. That's like, right. Pretty much don't know. Um, curiosity is lacking in most of us. So whenever I confront somebody's viewpoint that really upsets me, makes me feel smug or makes me feel assaulted, I have to, the discipline you're talking about, the discipline I go to is asking a curious question. We can do this with our kids all the time. We can do it with the, you know, high school friend on Facebook. We can do it with our spouses. Um, ask a curious question. A curious question does not presume to know the answer. So when your five-year-old says, I don't want to wash my hands, we don't secretly think they don't want to because they hate obeying me or they don't want to because they're lazy or they don't want to because they love mud. It's literally, oh, oh, you don't want to wash your hands. Tell me more about that. What, what is it about washing hands you don't want to do? Right. It's actually not knowing. And so when you say, I don't know, that can sound like an answer, but it can also be a question. It can be, I don't know why you don't want to wash your hands. You're giving me information, but I actually don't know why that information is meaningful to you. Yeah. You know, I'm not getting the vaccine. Oh, Tell me more about why the vaccine doesn't sound like a good idea to you. It sounds like such a good idea to me. Now I'm, I'm kind of curious That's to know right. why it's yes. not interesting yes. to you, right? That's right. This is how, this is, by the way, exactly the same thing I recommend in terms of how you talk to somebody in a call about, yes. about their beliefs, right? Interrogate their beliefs. Be curious, right? Get information from them because they know it better than you do. Or at, least, or at least they think they do. And well, so, they know the experience, yeah, right? right? So, that's you know, right. when you were talking before about being a leader in the cult. Okay, so I want to I want to interrogate the word cult for a minute. Yeah. Cult actually means worship, right? So it's it, it's used at, um, in, oh, well, how would you define it? I'm curious. I oh, saw that facial I, no, expression. No, absolutely. <laughs> Only because I... Um, because there are um, cults that are not religious in nature. And so I, I, I analogize it actually to its etymological roots, which is culture. It comes from the same nice. place culture goes to. Nice. Right? Group of people united around nice. common purpose, that kind of thing. But I'm not, I'm not rejecting your worship uh, uh, definition there. Please continue. I just uh, you know, was thinking about it. No, I love that. I actually love the idea that the root word would go to culture as well. Yeah. So within Christian theology, cult is a term that actually goes to the notion of worship. And the reason that that's mm -hmm. important to me is it actually goes more like to the order of service. It goes to this sort of structure that contains a set of practices that give the community a kind of coherence. A lot of times when we're, you know, everybody's cult obsessed right now. I'm obsessed with Teal Swan and like, I can't stop. You know, you got to listen. You got to watch the FLDS. Like, how can you not watch this stuff? Right. Because it's so fascinating. But when you do it with a pass the popcorn kind of way, you're sort of missing what that experience of reverence. And that's where I was trying to go with this uh, word cult. Yes. Um, of what reverence feels like to the people who inhabit the communities. Yes. And so when we treat them like they're crazy or they're weird, we're actually missing something that exists in everybody's life. Like I live in Cincinnati. Do you know what the Bengals fans are right now? They are a cult. <laughs> I mean, they yes. love their team. Yes. We went to the Super Bowl. They had a yes. party 
after we lost the Super Bowl. That's how dedicated they are, right? They show up right there. There is this feeling of belonging that a cult creates for you. And you end up being fans of ideas instead of team players. And we want to see how well those ideas play the game. And so we're just in there throwing pitches. Hey, here's an idea. Let's see. I was in Est. Okay. So this is Warner Earhart uh, back in the 70s. Yep, yep. And they had this thing they called the marble game. And I played it religiously. Um, you write in your journal at the top, I intend for this. And then you write the counter um, that, uh, that, oh, you write, I intend this. Then you write, it will happen. And then you write, it will not happen. So you write the, the way it could be and the way it could not be. And then you go through arguments for both. And then at the end, you say that you intend it. And somehow this is magic. And it's going to lead you into getting the thing you want. So I was boy obsessed. Most of mine are about boys because I was, you know, 18. <laughs> so <laughs> how is that different than praying for a spouse? How is that different than, you know, the secret that Oprah promotes? How is that different than fantasy football? I'm going to put together my team, and this is the team that would have been the ideal one to win the game. We are manipulating information, imagination, all of the levers of what we think live in the universe for advantage. Everyone does it. And a cult is just a version of that. The reason that we're like so shocked is their countercultural well, <laughs> in exactly. their behaviors. Exactly. And their level of control is much bigger than being a Bengal sports fan, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, they, the, the control becomes coercive. That's right. That's, yeah, and that's where things go off the rails very, very quickly. And that really is the big difference is because— It is. Because, I mean, I don't know if everybody knows this or not, but, you know, fans, that term— Short for fanatics. Fanatic, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, and if and if the Sea Org aren't a bunch of fanatics and the Bengals, you know, it's like, what's the difference? Well, basically, what the the degree of control exerted on those people. That's right. That's right. And yeah. interestingly, um, we love to belong to groups. I've always been a fan of being a fan. You know, I was a huge U2 and Bono fan, and I love sports, and I love being a sports fan, and I from LA and I'm a big fan of being from LA. I, you know, like I love the feeling of belonging to a group of people who are excited about the same things. Yeah. And then there are the people who say, oh, I would never be a fan, right? They're like these weird countercultural people who suck the joy out of life. Um, they're fans of each other. They're fans of not being a fan. They love being iconoclasts together. I, it, I think it's just human nature to want to belong and to try and explain this really hard to explain existence that we all share. Yeah. And so we're looking for communities to do that with. That's right. And that's, and there is nothing wrong with any of that. Oh, is, thanks for saying that, by the way. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I try to get to, to people like, like it's not an abnormality or some weird aberrant behavior that people get into groups or that people get really excited about it. It's, it's the fact that it gets taken advantage of where we That's lose it. the plot, you know? And, and it's happening in businesses. Oh, yeah. Like, we tend to treat it like it's only in weird sort of spiritual communities. But, like, literally, businesses exploit employees. Schools exploit students and yes. faculty. Yes. Exploitation is a feature of being human. And it, it happens to flourish inside groups, which is another reason 
for humility, vetting. One of the things I tell parents all the time, the healthiest family is one that values dissent. Like I want to start in the living room. My generation, your generation, it's over. We're, we need to die. <laughs> we're, we're too late to the internet. We don't understand how to cite statistics. We're, it's over for us. But maybe my grandchildren, uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot of hope, but in the living room, in the living room, can we occasionally, because we can't do it all day, sometimes we just got to tie the shoes and go to Target, um, can we value dissent? When your child, I had a 16-year-old who got really into the movie Zeitgeist. Do you remember that crazy oh, thing? Oh, my God. I, unfortunately, I went down the Zeitgeist rabbit hole, but that was back when I was in Scientology. Yeah. Of course. We and actually of course, used that to recruit more Scientologists. Oh, Lord have mercy. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, but the thing is, so at the time, my husband and I, we were both like, oh, we know this is not good. But my husband wanted to tell Jacob what was good, mm -hmm. but I didn't see it that way. I said, John, actually, imagine that Jake is 15 or 16, and for the first time, he's questioning capitalism. For the first time, he's questioning whether everything he sees is the way it appears. That's actually a fabulous developmental state exactly. and step. So we valued it. I ended yeah. up just like watching it with him, lots of conversations. So fast forward. And today he's a UN peacekeeping officer in um, Central African Republic and a human rights lawyer from Columbia Law School. He kept going. Just because your child camps for a moment on the wrong religion or conspiracy theories, if you have the room to hold that this is a sign of dissent and critical thinking, they can move through it. What happens, what makes most of us stay in cults, I'll speak for myself, what made me last until I didn't, and then evangelical Christianity last till I didn't, is my dissent wasn't valued. Right. When you start dissenting, they start excluding. Yep, yep. And yet, if you want your children to grow, you cannot be the community that excludes them when they dissent from the parental propaganda program. You've right. got to give them room. To, well, it's a phase explore. of development. I mean, you can't help it. Right. All you That's can right. do is either support it, be part of it, right? And contribute yep. as best you can as a parent. Right. Or you're going to be part of the advers adversarial. That's and it. It's it's one or the other, you know? Yep. And, and kids at that stage, we know, I mean, you better than me. It, it's going to happen. They're going to do it. It's hormonal, practically. It's like you it just is. don't even know what happened. One day they're... This loving little kid, they listen to everything you say, and the next day they are just, they just nothing you say is right. Nothing you do is right. And nothing, no amount of trying to, you know, help or assist or, or, or come to their aid or anything. Nope. Don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, you just, he, what happened? Well, I can tell you what happened. <laughs> they left your living room. Right. <laughs> exactly. They met human beings who were leading successful lives using a completely different frame of reference. That's right. I remember the first time I ate dinner at my Orthodox Jewish friend's house, and I wasn't allowed to have milk even on the table with our dinner, and I was a vegetarian. Okay, so this is hilarious. My family was this weird, you know, like wellness family, and we drank raw milk, and we didn't eat beef, and we were really like those people. And she was like Orthodox Jew. Her family was from Boston, so like totally different than me. 
And I got in an argument with her dad. I mean, what cheek did I have in seventh grade? I'm like, dude, I don't keep kosher. I should be allowed to have this milk. I'm not eating meat with it, you know? And then they had to explain all their religious perspectives. And then she comes to my house where milk is on the table. And I mean, it was, it was amazing. But that's the beginning, right? That's You're like, right. oh, they've constructed reality differently than my family and they didn't die and they're not in jail. So there might be other ways of doing this thing. Exactly. Whoa. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Hey, getting back to that, I don't know thing, because I, I want to harp on that for a second. Oh, good. And and the reason I want is because I want to ask you, how do you incorporate that or put that into your modality? What do you, what, how does that fit into the curriculum or the homeschooling um, sort of paradigm you Model. created? Yeah, you were modeling. So inside this book, Raising Critical Thinkers, I've got activities for every age from five to 18, and they are oriented towards helping kids discover how they think. So for instance, in the very first chapter, I talk about how there is a point of view in almost any fairy tale that we tell. There's the omniscient fairy tale story narrator. And then we talk about what would happen if this same story was told by the wolf. And of course, John Sheska did this for Little Red Riding Hood, and it's just hilarious, or the Three Little Pigs, excuse me. And it's just hilariously funny to an adult, but it is the beginning of recognizing that we don't know everything. We don't know all the dynamics just because we've read something at face value. Um, as I progress through the book, I always joke that the subtitle could be A Thousand and One Questions Julie Expects You to Ask by the Time Your Child's 18. Um, but there, there are questions like, and these were helpful to me in grad school. I'm not just, you know, some guru here. I actually have done a lot of research and have been through uh, graduate level uh, education that taught me these things, like asking, you know, whose viewpoint is being excluded? Whose viewpoint is being overlooked? Uh, who told that story? What about the people that didn't have access to literacy? What is their story? How can we find out about it? I remember the first time I saw those kinds of questions and asked them related to historical documents, it was like life shattering. I, I, I suddenly felt like I had just been given a key to an underground tunnel and I was suddenly in a room of people that we had been silencing for centuries, right? So for me, the I don't know piece is asking the kinds of questions that destabilize knowing, that destabilize our assumptions our beliefs that because I read that, I now have an opinion and my opinion's valid. It's like, right. how can we unseat your confidence on kind of a regular basis? Oh, that's, that's great. And, and it's a necessary, and again, I, I'm going to stress a disciplinary measure because that's right. Cause it's not, I, would you agree with me? I've, I've asserted this a number of times. Would you agree with me though? Cause I, I, I don't know that I'm right. Um, <laughs> I don't think that it's an organic process to critically think. I think you have to be taught it. Oh, I agree. Okay. I mean, we are yeah. we are biologically tribal people yes. and we we invent fantasies of truth like faster than we can eat a bag of Lay's potato yes, chips. Exactly. In exactly. fact, I was in this long conversation with a friend of mine on Vox the other day. We were going back and forth, and she works in the business consulting field, and then I work in home education, and we're both trying to help people have functional lives, right? So she's doing it with business leaders and their staff, and I'm working with parents and their children. 
And the thing that we landed on is how much we believe our stories about the people we're in charge of. We're, I, I, like we make up stories about our children constantly, like the motives they have, the ideas that they believe, and we don't spend any time asking the questions. And then we do the same thing with our own parenting styles. Um, I was laughing the other day, I was reviewing several parenting books. When I was raising kids, especially in the Christian environment, the watchword was obedience. And it was mm -hmm. what I used to call spank on command. If you command it and they don't do it, you got to spank them. So it was this very parent is the authority. Child doesn't get to think about what you say. They've just got to do it. Yeah. So that we've all decided was wrong. But I grew up thinking that's how you raise kids. So I spent years, you know, damaging my children under the belief that I was right. Today's parents, they don't believe in obedience, but you know what they've replaced it with? Cooperation which is identical, but it's just more manipulative language. It's like a PR job for obedience. Wow, I see where you're coming from, yeah. Yeah, if my agenda is the agenda and my job is to either make you obey or make you cooperate, what's the difference? Right. One right. of them is not admitting I have an agenda. The other one at least is straightforward. I'm in charge, you're not. The other one is like, I'll pretend we're collaborating, but you are gonna do it my way. Right. So, right. so when you talk about this, like, I don't know, and how to structure the family, for me, it is the discipline of repeatedly reminding yourself that your child is from a completely different planet than you. It's the awareness that you actually don't know the story of that child mm -hmm. and quit telling stories about your children. Oh, she was a hard baby. Maybe you were just in a hard season as an adult and your poor kid got the, you know, right. maybe you're just not a patient person. Tell that story. Oh, when this baby was born, I wasn't patient. Right. I, I did not have the patience to hold a crying baby. That's so different than this is a hard child. So that's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And I really love that you brought that up. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I, I, and I get where you're coming from on that. And yet, and yet, as you point out, you have to make decisions sometimes of yeah. the shoes we're leaving. Yeah, that's you know, right. We're not going to have that's a right. two hour conversation. But then just own it. This, you know, it, then own it. Don't dress it up in like, oh, I've created a cooperative environment. Just say, you know what? I'm in charge. We're leaving. Let them live with the experience that's honestly. Right. So they can say, I hate it when you're in charge. Yep, I, but I am. And that's, that's right. happening now. That's and this right. will change over time. Um, tell me more about how much you hate it. Yeah. I, I, I want to have that conversation when we get home from Target. We will do that, right? right? Like that. Exactly, exactly. I, I actually, that's so funny you bring that up. Um, I won't go into long detail about it, but yeah, when I was about four or five, my mom and I had a very, very, very deep conversation about whether I was or wasn't a slave to her. And it was quite an interesting conversation. Wow. To have. Yeah, when I was about five, because I... I, we were, I mean, again, not to get all into the details, but we were at a bookstore. I didn't want to leave. I was really into books. She said, yeah, well, it's time to go. We got to go. And she had the car. And so we're leaving. And I stopped outside the store for the first time. And I was like, no, why is it that you could just because you say we have to go that I have to go? I was in there looking at books. I want to go back in there. Why is this a problem? And she, to her credit, sat me down and we had this hour-long tearful conversation about my role and hers. 
And it was a very clarifying conversation because it was a real, it was probably the first facts of life conversation. And I remember it to this day, and I was about five or six years old, of, look, there are times where we, we are the parents and you are the kid. You would like to know everything. You would like to have autonomy, but you don't. And that's the fact. And until you go, until you have the ability to go get a job, make money, buy your own food, get yourself around, you're reliant on me. And I'm the adult. And that means I have to make decisions for you. And that sucks sometimes for you. And I get that. But that's the situation. You know, it was very clarifying. (laughs) But it's also so cool that she took the time to talk to you about that. And I'll bet you, I mean, I, I don't know her or you, but I wonder if the next time you wanted to stay longer, if she didn't. Because one of the things that happens is when you actually know the story that is the story of the person and you know it from their perspective, you can make room for it. It's when you don't understand it and you make assumptions and you take those assumptions personally. My child's just a, you know, she's just a strong-willed girl and she won't leave the store is very different than my daughter loves books. Exactly. And when you start to understand, oh, my daughter loves books, then next time, maybe you're like, well, we'll, we'll leave a little early because I know she's going to really want to hang out in the book section. And that's part of this. I, one of the things I say in the book, um, Chris, that I, this is a great maybe way to end. Mm. When we're talking about solutions for some of our biggest struggles, whether they're in the family about you know how to raise a kid or it's a social or political issue, we actually create better solutions when we account for more viewpoints. The the method that we use today in most of our political rhetoric is conversion. And I know, having been a missionary, conversion is a terrible strategy. It is very, very slow to accomplish the goal, and it's usually violent on some level. But if we say, okay, the goal is people don't get shot by guns, and then, and we all agree with that, whether you like guns or you don't like guns, we don't want innocent people to be shot by guns. And then we start accounting for, well, these people who love guns, this is what they're worried about. These people who make guns, this is what they're worried about. These people who've been killed by guns, this is what they're worried about. And you start including, expanding to include more viewpoints, you will actually have better solutions. But we don't want to include who we've deemed our enemies. And so we actually amplify the conflict and create more chaos, pain, and worse solutions. We just, right? right. So critical thinking is essential for a better functioning world. But I think you start in your living room. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. And I, there are so many things. I'm sitting here making a note right now. Um, There are so many things I want to ask you about that we do not have time for today because we've given ourselves about an hour to do this talk today. But I am going to just ask you on mic here, would you be interested in coming back? I'd love to. Great. This is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. (laughs) Oh, awesome. Well, I'm very happy to hear that because this has been wonderful for me too. I have have been looking for people like you 
Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, very much so. And I know they exist. I've, I've known they've existed, but it's it, they're they're few and far between. <laughs> and and we need a lot more of us. We really, really do. And I don't just mean an army of critical thinkers as though, you know, that's something. I just mean people who can think outside the boxes that we are put in, in our education, in our cultural yes. experiences, right? This idea that we have to fight, you know, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to fight you. And even that basic of a concept is is worthy of being challenged from time to time. It's like, no, how about we figure out ways to include, not exclude? Yes. I, I love that approach. I love that approach. Yes, me too. You know? Me too. That's, that's exactly how to solve problems. More seats at the ta solution table, yes. right? Agreed. Right. I'm with you on that, Chris. Beautiful. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. You are very welcome. And uh, I guess on that note, we will we will wrap up. Um, but I, like I said, I got a billion more questions for you about the school okay. system, about teaching oh, critical yeah. thinking, you know, because I'm assuming right now that you don't see our, cert our current system as, you know, necessarily the way to go about it. There's a lot of really good research being done and some fabulous innovators out there. And I like amplifying their message. And then I also really believe in public school, believe it or not, despite being a home educator, uh, because it is essential. It is essential. We would not have the globe we have today with the interconnections we have without it for the last 150 years. Yep. But yes, critical thinking needs to be the thread that holds it all together. And I would love to discuss how that can happen. Beautiful. That'll be our, I'm sure that could be our next show. Perfect. All right, Julie, thank you very much. Now let's, let's wrap up by telling everybody, where do they find you? How do they contact oh, you? Oh, thank you. Yes. So if you're interested in my book, I have um, a website, raisingcriticalthinkers.com. There's also a free download if you want to do a book club with friends reading the book. It's a little book club guide. I felt like people should read this book in community so that you can actually experiment with the ideas uh, with your children and with each other. And then I am on Instagram at Julie Brave Writer if you want to follow me. And my company is called BraveWriter.com. And we have online classes and materials for homeschoolers and non-homeschoolers around writing and thinking. Brilliant. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. All right, guys. And if this show was entertaining, informative, and educational for you, and hopefully it was even just a little bit, then I hope you will consider supporting this channel, either through Patreon, through Venmo, PayPal, whatever. Just show us some love. You know, buy me a cup of coffee, whatever. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming around, guys. And I will see you next week. Bye-bye.